The old pilot's plane tales. The cargo gods. It's a remote place on a remote island in Melanesia, that area of the Pacific Islands to the northeast of Australia. That includes Papua New Guinea and Vanuatu. The terrain is rugged and almost inaccessible, except to the indigenous people of the area. They live in an isolated way, in the same way that they have for centuries, akin to the people of the Stone Ages. They've rarely seen someone with white skin. In their warm tropical climate, the Melanesians wear few clothes, but they decorate their bodies with garish paints and leaves, and they wear large necklaces of bones and ornaments, some of which they skewer through their noses. As the sun sets, they gather on a high ridgeline, nearly 9,000 feet above the ocean that surrounds the island. Here they have built something that you and I might find strangely familiar. On the top of the ridge they have carved a long straight strip of flattened earth edged with stakes. At one end is a roofed tower made out of bamboo poles wound together with jungle creeper. A platform is near the top where some men sit looking out over the smooth strip of earth along the edge of which sit groups of natives who gaze attentively up into the sky. At the other end sits what at first glance is an aircraft. Closer inspection reveals something that is crude but recognisable. There is the shape of a wing atop a fuselage with a tail, but it was never made to take to the air. It's built from branches and covered with leaves, but it's lined up as if to take off. In the fast-disappearing light, a fire has been lit, which is passed along to set torches ablaze along the runway and even up in the control tower. A little airfield has been created for the cargo planes, for these people worship the machines that pass over them, on their way to the big airfield on the edge of the island, where they refuel on their journey between Hong Kong and Australia. They have seen the aircraft land at the big airfield and disgorge prizes of great wealth. They don't understand where they've come from, but believe that they must be from above the clouds where their ancestors live in paradise, and that they bring untold riches. Somehow the white man at the airfield have fooled their ancestors into sending the planes to them instead of the villagers, their descendants. So they build their own landing strip in the hope that their ancestors will send some of the metal birds down and shower them with cargo, for these people belong to a cargo cult. The term cargo cult was coined in 1945 by Norris Bird, an old territories resident, who wrote one of the first published analyses of the phenomena after the Second World War. The sudden appearance during the war of soldiers from both sides, first the Japanese and later the Australians and Americans, introduced the unsophisticated natives of the remote islands to a level of technology that was far beyond their wildest imaginations. 
the pilots who flew the Douglas C-47 Skytrains, the C-54 Skymasters and the Curtis C-46 Commandos would have no idea that their presence in the air over these primitive tribes would have such a profound effect upon them. Up to that point, the only real contact tribesmen had with the Western world was through a few missionaries who tried to prod them into Christianity. The cult got its biggest boost when American troops by the thousands were dispatched to the New Hebrides and other islands where they built large military bases. The bases included hospitals, airstrips, jetties, roads, bridges and corrugated steel quonset huts, many erected with the help of hundreds of local men recruited as labourers. Of course, where the US Armed Forces go, so go the legendary PXs, with their seemingly endless supply of chocolate, cigarettes and Coca-Cola. For men who lived in huts and farmed yams, the Americans' wealth was a revelation. Almost daily, cargo aircraft would land and offload vast amounts of cargo wealth, or drop them haphazardly from the skies on parachutes. The troops paid them 25 cents a day for their work and handed out generous amounts of goodies. The Americans' munificence dazzled the men, as did the sight of dark-skinned soldiers eating the same food, wearing the same clothes, living in similar huts and tents, and operating the same high-tech equipment as white soldiers. One tribe, under Chief Isaac, believed that a man that they called John Frum appeared to a group of elders and now led them in their belief. This mythical white man led Chief Isaac's tribe and others into a cult of followers. In 1943, the U.S. command, concerned about the movement's growth, sent the USS Echo to Tanna with Major Samuel Patton on board. His mission was to convince the John Frum followers that, as his report put it, the American forces had no connection with John Frum. He failed. The villagers believed that their messiah was responsible for sending the generous U.S. military and its cargo to them. At the war's end, the U.S. military unwittingly enhanced the legend of their endless supply of cargo when they bulldozed tons of equipment, trucks, jeeps, aircraft engines, supplies, off the coast of Espiritu Santo. During six decades in the shallows, coral and sand have obscured much of the watery grave of Warsopolis, but people can still see tyres, bulldozers and even full coke bottles. The locals wryly named the place Million Dollar Point. After the war, when the tribesmen returned to their huts, they were convinced that John Frum would soon join them, and hacked a primitive airstrip out of the jungle to tempt the expected American planes from the skies. Across the South Pacific, thousands of other cargo cult followers began devising similar plans, even building bamboo control towers strung with rope and bamboo aerials to guide in the planes. 
1964, one cargo cult on New Hanover Island in Papua New Guinea offered the US government $1,000 for Lyndon Johnson to come out and be their paramount chief. But as the years passed with empty skies, almost all the cargo cults disappeared. The devotees' hopes crushed. Chief Isaac was asked, John promised you much cargo more than 60 years ago, and none has come, so why do you keep faith with him? Why do you still believe in him? Chief Isaac grinned and replied, You Christians have been waiting 2,000 years for Jesus to return to earth, he says, and you haven't given up hope. The islanders believed that their own dead ancestors continued to influence the communities of the living, and that their ancestors would one day come back to life and distribute to them unimaginable wealth. Therefore they reasoned that the white people must have connections to their own ancestors who would logically be the only ones powerful enough to rain down such wondrous riches. So they set in motion a plan to bring back the cargo. They had surreptitiously learned the secrets of summoning the cargo by observing the practices of the American airmen, sailors and soldiers. The islanders set to work clearing their own kind of landing strips and they erected their own control towers strung with rope and bamboo aerials. They carved wooden radio headsets with bamboo antenna and even the occasional wooden air traffic control tower. Day after day, men from the village sat in their towers, wearing their headsets as others stood on the runways and waved the landing signals to attract cargo-bringing aeroplanes from the sky. More towers were constructed with tin cans strung on wires to imitate radio stations. The religions introduced by missionaries were completely inconsistent with islanders' long-held beliefs, yet the natives could not deny the call of the cargo. The people therefore attempted to reconcile their existing beliefs with the missionaries' teachings, a practice which led to some strange interpretations. In New Guinea, one resulting version of Christianity described a god named Annas, who delivered cargo of canned meat, steel tools, rice and matches to Adam and Eve, when they discovered sex, Annas ejected them from Eden and struck them with a flood. On one island, villagers clothed themselves in homemade U.S. Army breeches, painted USA on their bare chests and backs, and ran a replica of Old Glory up the flagpole alongside the Marine Corps emblem and the state flag of Georgia. Barefoot soldiers then marched in perfect step in the shadow of Yasur, the island's active volcano, with red-tipped bamboo-like rifles slung over their shoulders. For a long time, the natives accepted the European mission as the means by which the cargo would eventually be made available to them, but they found that acceptance of Christianity did not bring the cargo any nearer, they grew disillusioned. One leader began to put about that it was not the whites who made the cargo, but the dead ancestors. To people completely ignorant of factory production, this actually made good sense. 
white men did not work. They merely wrote secret signs on scraps of paper for which they were given shiploads of goods. On the other hand, the Melanesians laboured week after week for pitiful wages. Plainly, the gods must be made for Melanesians somewhere, perhaps in the land of the dead. The whites who possessed the secret of the cargo were intercepting it and keeping it from the hands of the islanders to whom it was really consigned. In the Madang district of New Guinea, after some forty years' experience of the missions, the natives went in a body one day with a petition, demanding that the cargo secret should now be revealed to them, for they had been very patient. So strong is this belief in the existence of a secret, that the cargo cults generally contain some ritual in imitation of the mysterious European customs which are held to be the clue to the white man's extraordinary power over goods and men. The believers sit around tables with bottles of flowers in front of them, dressed in European clothes, waiting for the cargo aircraft to materialise. Europeans who have witnessed outbreaks inspired by the cargo cults are usually at a loss to understand what they behold. The islanders throw away their money, break their most sacred taboos, abandon their gardens and destroy their precious livestock. They indulge in sexual license or alternatively rigidly separate men from women in huge communal establishments. Sometimes they spend days sitting gazing at the horizon for a glimpse of the long-awaited aircraft. Sometimes they dance, pray and sing in mass congregations, becoming possessed and speaking with tongues. Of course, the cargo never comes. The cults, nevertheless, live on. If the cargo does not arrive on schedule, then perhaps there is some failure in the magic, some error in the ritual. New breakaway groups organize around purer faith and ritual. The cult rarely disappears, so long as the social situation which brings it into being persists. So, my fellow flyers, be you enjoying a meal in your comfortable seats or driving the thing up front, have a thought for what is going on beneath you. Your very presence in the air may be driving some poor tribesmen into desperate straits as they try to lure you down onto their primitive landing strip so that they can loot you of your cargo that is rightly theirs, gifts from their ancestors. If you enjoy Plain Tales, please pop over to iTunes and leave a review. Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy Show podcast. Find us at airlinepilotguy.com.